episode of the Classic Pickup Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whips, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Classic Pickup Supplies, your number one Ford and Chev pickup parts supplier. Mention Classic Truck for a 10% discount off your first order. Classic Pickup Supplies, located in Coolum Beach, Queensland. Call 07 5446 2667. Or visit their website, www.classicpickupsupplies.com.au. Classic Pickup Supplies, dedicated to the restoration and preservation of the pickup. Episode 51. This one's for all you Queensland builders up there, truck owners, uh, car and vehicle builders. Finally caught up with an engineer up in the Sunshine State. So Dr. Tim's Auto Engineering, he's based out of Brisbane and... uh, Came highly recommended by quite a few people when I put the feelers out. So this is a great episode with Dr. Tim. A um, few things that I found interesting about the Queensland rules that are a bit different to what we're dealing with down south. And uh, so good to have a listen. Um, as always, you know, do your do your own research. Speak to your own engineers. Don't take anything verbatim that Tim says. He's uh, He works on a case-by-case situation. But what he tried to do for us was you know, have some specific uh, examples and give us a bit of an idea and, and help us guide our way. So really great listen. I, I talked to him about airbags and lowering a vehicle during this interview and, and some interesting rules up there in Queensland. So what I wanted to do myself was double check uh, down here in Victoria what we can and can't do. And, and I did do that. I had a bit of a look at the Victorian uh, Vic Roads rules on air springs and if you're a Victorian uh, listening to this, uh, I'll just read out to, at the end of the episode after we finish, I'll, I'll just come back on and I'll read out a little bit word for word what it says in uh, the Victorian rules. And I mean, that's always, you know, your engineer will interpret things a little bit, but word for word what the, the Vic Roads site says we can and can't do. So if you're in Victoria and, and you sort of listen to this episode and you're like, oh, geez, what can I do and what can't I do? Obviously, you know, you need to speak to your engineer as well, but the information is available, as Tim says quite a few times in here. You can you can read the VSB uh, bulletin on the internet and you can also get on Vic Roads or your local state's uh, pages and, you know, if you know where to look, you can find this information. So enjoy this episode. I, I really enjoyed chatting to Tim. I, I spoke to him for quite a while uh, off-air as well and very knowledgeable and, and obviously been in the scene for a long time. So it was great to talk to him. So enjoy the episode, and yeah, if you're from Victoria, tune in at the end, and, and I'll have a little bit more. Tim, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. I, um, I've been looking forward to getting another engineer on. It's taken a little while, and uh, I'm actually quite intrigued because everyone's been writing to me and saying, oh, we need to get a Queensland engineer on, and, and I actually, on our last episode, I put a shout out, and I say, look, anyone got any questions for a Queensland engineer, email me, and you know, and I can ask Tim. And I didn't get any emails, so that's quite interesting. But, mate, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you on. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure. Uh, just let me know how I can help you. Like, like I mentioned, we might we'll start back at your early days, um, like we all did, getting our license or getting our first cars. Tell us a bit about your story and um, you know, and how you maybe got into hot rodding cars a bit and then what eventually led you to becoming an engineer yourself? Well, I don't know where to start, but um, I grew up in Brighton in South Australia, um, a suburb of Adelaide. My Two of my brothers were uh, car builders and modifiers. So almost by the time I was, I don't, I don't know, it's hard to remember, but I have pretty vivid child memories of being less than 10 years old and knowing what a half nine sixteen spanner was, um, because I was the go getter. I was uh, in Adelaide. We families often had pits, so you, my brother, would be down in the pit, and he'd say, "Hey Tim, hand me a half nine sixteen, or hand me a ball paint hammer, or whatever." And you know that was my job. I went to the toolbox, handed them the tools, and and uh, that's where it all started. 
So I was kind of learning without knowing I was learning, I think. And then by the time, so each brother then gradually moved, you know, they had girlfriends, got married and left. And so eventually that family backyard shed became mine. And um, so I started my life with an E.H. Holden, which we modified like everyone did back then. But I soon fell in love with hot rodding. And by the time I was uh, 21, I'd already built a 1934 Ford with um, all Holden running gear, Holden front suspension, Holden rear, uh, Holden V8, which was uh, um, something rare back in those days. Hot rodders generally used American engines, the Ford um, small blocks and the and the Chevy 350s and so on. So here I am with a 308 and four-speed in there. It was a bit different. Uh, during those early stages, I also developed a couple of products that were, uh, I thought it, this car needed something other than a steering box. So I developed a rack and pinion conversion. And I don't think many people realise that that was the beginning of rack and pinion adaptions in Australia. And that was from a 21-year-old engineering student I was at the time uh, that became something far and wide right throughout Australia. Uh, so I built, um, overall, I built seven hot rods during my my time up until now. I've still got a 1932 Ford five-window coupe now. But in 1990, sorry, in 2010, rather, my son and I decided we'd build an elite street machine. We'd been to Summonats four or five times. We loved what we saw. We bought a Monaro from Adelaide. I should say that during all that time, I've also moved to Queensland. And so I was in Adelaide on a visit with my family. I opened the newspaper. There was a HQ Monaro for sale for three and a half thousand. I couldn't get around there fast enough. Wow, yeah. Uh, we secured that car, shipped it back to Brisbane. It was black. Uh, sorry, it was green with a black vinyl roof. And now it's bright orange. And that's uh, been top 20 in some of that three years in a row in 2011, 12 and 13. And um, it's still a beautiful car today, 10 years later. So what people get when they talk with me is they talk, they're talking with an engineer. I am qualified. I did finish my degree, but I'm also a car builder and I love getting people's projects on the road. So I, uh, I'm supporting the guys out there who want to build cars, particularly those who want to build them legally and well engineered. So yeah, does that answer your question that that's sort of a lead up to where we are today? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I think that there is a mentality out there amongst a lot of car builders or, or vehicle builders that, you know, the engineers are just out there to make everything hard for them and the engineers are the one that's, you know, they're doing this and they're doing that. And perhaps, you know, as you say, you're a car builder and, like, you you love nothing better than to see someone's project make it onto the road. But maybe you can talk a little bit to us about, your boss, you know, you, you effectively follow a set of rules that are dictated by the Australian government, I imagine. Like what, how exactly does all that work as far as the Australian-wide ADRs and then the Queensland side of things as well? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, so Queensland has, well, every state has their own interpretation of what we call the national guidelines, which is uh, called VSB 14. Vehicle Standards Bulletin 14. And anyone can type in VSB 14 into their computer and all the rules will come up there. But of course, and it was meant to be a national code, but each state typically, uh, in typical Australian fashion, interprets it differently. So we, our Queensland Transport um, Engineering Branch, interprets it their way and we work with them hand in glove in that interpretation. And then, as you just mentioned, the ADRs then sit in the background. So it, no matter what the modification code, whether it's the fitting of a V8 in a car that didn't have one or the adaption of a new front suspension and rear suspension or any other conversion, they all have codes in the national system. 
and supporting behind those codes are the relevant ADRs that engineers need to be aware of when they're approving those kinds of modifications. So um, we often have this argument with our clients that we simply read the code and, and operate under that. We don't make this up ourselves. Um, some people think that we are. Uh, and some people don't read them thoroughly and correctly. And I think there's certifiers out there who may not be completely up to speed. But as an engineer, we're bound by the engineer's code of practice. And I treat that pretty seriously. So, and I, you know, as a young guy growing up in Adelaide with, you know, very middle class or low class parents, even becoming an engineer was important to me. So becoming a good one is also important. So that's how I want to operate. I want to help people get their cars on the road. I want to get the most out of those rules that we can get the nicest looking machine that they would like to develop. But I want to stay within the rules and make it legal. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's good. Do you, do you think, you know, let's just say I did a survey or, you know, a secret survey and I took a tricky question to 10 different Queensland engineers. I should get the same answer from 10 people, shouldn't I? But it, it doesn't seem to be the case. And is that where the interpretations of each engineer of the interpretations of Queensland government's interpretation of the rules, you know, I think that's what frustrates a lot of people. I just wonder where you where you think that comes from. Yeah, look, that's a really tricky question and I don't want to run down uh, other certifiers, but, and I've talked about talked to this topic with Queensland Transport, they give out a hell of a lot of authority uh, with very little responsibility. Uh, there's no There's no strong auditing program behind engineers certifying products uh, or cars. And so different people behave differently when you're given authority, and I'm sure you understand this. Mm. Some, some, uh, some will use that authority in a good way, and some will use it in a bad way. To me, there's no, there's no interpreting the rules. The rules are clear. But what I see is that people want to interpret it to their advantage and they read it in the way that they would like it to be read or they don't read it thoroughly at all. And so they just make it up as they go along. As a good practicing engineer, you can't do that. And if I gave you a list of the top five, say, engineers in Queensland, I think you would be able to ring all of those, Michael, and they would all give you the same answer because the answer is in the guideline. Yeah. You can download VSB 14 yourself and read it. And I get the occasional customer who is a smart guy, he might come from a professional background, and he's read the whole bloody thing. And he tells me his interpretation. I say, yep, look, you're spot on with that. You're right on the money. You, you, could, most, you could almost build this car and just present it at the end because you know exactly what we're going to say. But that's very rare, Michael, as you can guess. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have downloaded it, and I wouldn't say I've read it. I wouldn't say that I've read it cover to cover. I, you know, I've read every time I'm doing a section, I sort of try and read and and understand and interpret kind of what I think, and then and then I talk to my engineer and say, "Is this what I think it is?" and and we run through it all. So, I, I think that's a pretty good place to launch into, um, you know, and. And for the guys listening, you know, we are talking about Queensland engineering here. So if yes. you're in another state, then then what we talk about may not exactly be correct for your state. And also everything that Tim is talking to us and telling us at the moment on the podcast is just general information. It's not specific to your build. And what you do need to remember is you need to find your own engineer and, you know, maybe Tim will become your engineer. That's up to you or find someone else. But you need to establish a relationship with somebody from ideally from the start so that as you're building everything that you're learning and knowing about your build, you know, makes sense. So just keep that in mind. Whatever Tim says doesn't exactly mean that that's correct for your vehicle. And, it, you know, even if you are in Queensland, it may be a different situation. So 
Tim, with the with the process, I mean, I think we were chatting earlier, and and the ideal world is, if I'm about to start a build, maybe I haven't even purchased my vehicle yet. Is that too early to call you or or an engineer, or is that the best time to do that? Look, it could be a bit early, but you can always guide a person to buying the right vehicle uh, at that early stage as well. But generally speaking, they've got something, either they're solid in their mind with what they want, or they've actually got it. And that helps um, to be a bit more definitive about, you know, where they should start and what our plan of attack is, because you know the rough size of the vehicle, you know its weight and its strength from the size of the rails and so on. And so you can start giving guidance you know, specific guidance straight away. Whereas if you come with just a, a, a concept of where you're going, we can really only talk in pretty general terms, but we can also stop you from buying the wrong vehicle. Um, you know, it could be the wrong size for, for a certain engine you might want or the wrong weight to be able to carry what you might want to do with it. Um, we can stop that. But if you've already got the vehicle, we can be very specific and... I then start with a plan of attack with the owner about, you know, what what suspension, what engine, what drivetrain, uh, how to mount the cab if it's a swap over of any sort, you know, the real specific data that they need to be aware of as they get going. And also break points where we should get back together again so that we don't get too far down the track um, before we have another look at, you know, where we're at. And finally, I always say to everyone, Michael, don't be afraid to call me because I'd rather have 20 phone calls than 20 surprises. Surprises are no good to anyone. If you go too far and without guidance, uh, you can end up having to undo it again. And that's a bad surprise for everybody. Yeah, that that gets costly real quick. Yes. So just quickly on on the, the cost point, um, I don't know how much you want to talk about. I, I don't want any figures, but if you and I uh, agree that we're going to do a vehicle together, you could probably give me a bit of a cost on what approximately what it should cost to engineer it. If I have a question and I just want to ring you up, you know, just, hey, Tim, I just don't know whether I'm doing this bracket out of three mil or four mil plate. Does that cost me to make a phone call to you? Or, or you know, you're like, as long as you don't ring me every day, that's all part of, the rough idea of a price that you're going to pay. Yeah, I give, uh, once we've talked about the project and we know where we are, and also I know about the competence of the owner uh, or so whether he's going to build it himself or whether he's going to use shops to build it for him, that gives me an idea of how much the cost should be. You know, if you get a really green guy, you've got to allow more money because you're going to be talking to him more, you're going to make more visits to the vehicle, but you get a really experienced guy you know you might only need to see him three times during the whole build so that's why that face-to-face meeting is pretty important but we can definitely give a budget price once we know where we're going and what's the once the degree of difficulty of the build and the competency of the builder is understood and i don't operate like lawyers do perhaps where they're recording every minute of a phone call that's all just that's all just given as part of what we do. And we invite those calls anyway because um, it saves it saves us money and time later on. Yeah. So I, I describe it to people sometimes a little bit like building a house when you're building a car because I think you, you know, you've got to get your foundations right, you know, and that's probably your chassis and suspension, for instance. But, you know, I, I'm a builder by trade, build houses. I have to get uh, the inspector in to check that the footings are right and the slabs pour correctly and then I need a frame inspection and then the roof's got to go on and and they're sort of you can almost think of them as as similar to stages of building a vehicle because like you say you, you could build the whole thing and just bring it to you at the end and um and maybe we'll talk about that you were saying that you know the the percentage of people who who talk to you sort of at the start of a build versus the percentage who comes to you towards the end you know there's there's a lot of people who perhaps aren't doing it the best way. Yeah, uh, look, I think less than 10% of builders come to me at the very beginning and say, look, I'd like to form a relationship with you over this build. I'd like to work through it with you. 
I'd like you to work hand in glove through the project with us. Uh, we need your guidance. Uh, here's my. Here, some of them come with very detailed plans about what they're going to do, but it's a rare event, Michael. Uh, and then I think there's another large percentage that come halfway through, and it could be at the at the suggestion of someone to say, "Hey, look, you're building this car, but have you got any help with this? Do you know that it's going to be uh, approvable and registrable at the end of this?" And suddenly they think, "Oh." You know, you wouldn't build a house like you were talking about, would you? And then ask the inspector to come round. He hasn't seen the slab. He hasn't seen the frame. How can he inspect that? It's covered up. And we get the same thing with car building. Particularly if welds have been ground and other elements have been put over the top, you can't tell anymore. And I won't get involved in a project that's like that because you're engineering something that you can't even tell how well it's been built so let's run through a couple of um you know we're we're a classic pickup podcast so we're going to talk about pickup trucks and and you do you have engineered quite a few of them but uh you know if i i'll give you a perfect example i currently have a 1948 ford f1 uh pickup truck that's uh floating on the water somewhere off melbourne hopefully and not far from arriving but mm-hmm. it obviously I, I think that truck would have had a flathead v8 in it it, it doesn't anymore. So right now I've got a rolling body with no engine or transmission, but it's on the original chassis. Uh, it's a half-ton truck. So if I came to you with, you know, the concept of, you know, I guess what most people would do with that Ford, I want to chuck a, a barra in it, you know, and I want to do something, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if I want to airbag it or not, but I want it to, drive more like a new car, I want to upgrade the suspension. What what sort of general advice or in your experience of what you've seen work, what what would you sort of be pointing me in the direction for that? Wow, that's a, that's such a broad question, but mm. at least you've got some detail there, Michael, so that's a good start. So there's a number of ways you could build that project. You could leave the original body on the original chassis. And in Queensland, um, that leaves you basically free of the ADRs because you're building a 1948 vehicle and you're still allowed to put that vehicle back on the road. So if you wanted to, if you were using, in fact, a 1965 Chevy small block in that, you could because we'd call that a smog motor now, wouldn't we? But it's in a 48 Chev, so that's allowable. You could put any suspension you like in there so, but I mean, you've talked about putting a barrier in there, so you're going to be up to speed with ADRs and emissions anyway. And this is where guys have to make that decision between am I going to use the original chassis or am I going to use uh, either an aftermarket chassis or, or scratch built one? You could build a brand new E out of RHS and make a new frame of your own, or you could use something out of an existing vehicle, hold on one tonners. Um, Nissan Patrol, all those chassis that are out there that are being used commonly in rebodies. Most people who take the rebody method do that because they want an easy path with the suspension. Because like on a Holden Montana, you've got all the front independent suspension already in there and you've got a leaf spring rear which you could either use or toss out and put a forelink in there. Uh, but it's an easy life. It's ready. Stick the cab on it, stick an engine in there, uh, and you're off and running. But guys who really want to build something special probably would normally stay with the original or or rebuild a scratch built chassis. So in, in Queensland, yeah. you you can build a brand new chassis at an RHS. Will that then be an ICV? No, you can't build an ICV, if you go to VSB 14 in the LO1 section, you can't build an ICV out of a production car base, whether it's the body or the chassis. Uh, and people haven't read this, the ICV section correctly, and there's ICVs being done constantly that come from production cars. But an ICV can only be built from a pile of tube on a floor 
and a body that didn't exist. Um, and a typical ICV that everyone understands is a Cobra. There's nothing Cobra in that car. It's a tube frame. It's a fiberglass body that's a replica of a Cobra. It's a V8 that never belonged in there, etc. So that's a scratch-built car. There's no production car base in it. But if you take something that we could all understand, like a Holden Kingswood, like a HK GT series uh, Kingswood, that can never be an ICV, no matter how much you modify it, because the body is still a production car. But there's two codes, LH5 and 6, which uh, in, in, I always term it in layman's terms, LH5 and 6 is the building of a new car from one or more existing vehicles. So it's not ICV, it's a code under the LH section of VSB14 that's ideal for rebodies or large-scale uh, projects like the HK with a new tube chassis and a massive V8 and so on. That you can do, you can basically build any car you want under LH5 and 6 with either existing chassis, uh, new chassis, or replica chassis. So that's all available to you. And the code is quite clear on that. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, no, that's good. And and if if you do that, would that still be registered as a 1948 Ford? Yes, it will, yeah. Oh, if you use the original chassis, if you use a Holden Montana, in Queensland, it's registered as a Holden Montana. And what if I build one out of RHS? That's a 48 Chev. That's a 48 Chev. Yeah, yeah okay. it is what it looks like. Uh, whereas in the case of using a surrogate chassis, it's what the chassis is, which does cause some people difficulty when they're being pursued by the police because it comes up on their computer on the in their car as a Holden, uh, and it doesn't look anything like a Holden. But once they pull the car over, then it's clear from the paperwork and the and the mod plate what's going on there normally anyway. Okay. And so then I've got the latest issue of a American truck magazine, Street Trucks, or I don't, I can't, I'm not sure which one still exists, to be honest. There's been a lot of changes. But, um, you know, I've opened that up and there's a, you know, let's, let's pick, a, pick a brand, doesn't really matter, CPP or, or, or whoever it is. And they've got a Mustang 2 um, full front suspension kit for my truck. I jump online and order it and ship it in here, fold it all up to my car and, and rock up to you. I've got no paperwork for any of that stuff. Where, where do we stand with all that? And, and is are any of those kits okay to use? I assume they are because people do use them. But what, what's the process with you if I want to use a kit like that? Because the Americans avoid liability by not having any engineering or not giving you any engineering, we basically have to start again, Michael, right from the beginning. So if it's got a fabricated suspension, we have to reverse engineer that. So that means measuring it up, doing the calculations, sending one arm off to the X-ray to validate the quality of the welding, um, torsion and beam test on the chassis to validate how strong it is, even though it might look identical to the original chassis that came out of the car, Queensland Transport won't accept that. That's a new chassis you need to tell us how strong it is. And the same relates to any other fabricated items, whether it be the four-link suspension, the spring rates on the rear, all of that stuff, we've got to go right through it. And so that I've never actually had somebody come through with one. They've asked me about buying one but they've all faded away because that's too big a cost. You know, it's you essentially double the cost of that product. If it's a $5,000, I don't know what they cost, Michael, but if it's a $5,000 chassis and suspension kit, it's $10,000 once you've reverse engineered it, typically. Yeah, well, that makes... I think that's why we don't see them a whole lot because that's the, the exact... You know, one of the, one of the things I really want to put into my build is a drop spindle. Um, and I know that I can go to certain reputable companies in Australia who make drop spindles for, you know, whether it's an FX or a 
HQ or, a, you know, all sorts of cars. But because the suspension in my Chev truck that I'm building is out of a C20, uh, which is obviously an American truck, not that not that popular here. Yeah, that we're manufacturing parts for them. So, for me to get a two and a half inch drop spindle, it's coming from America, and as you say, there's really nothing there uh, paperwork wise. So, if I wanted to use a drop spindle that I've had to purchase in America, I can pay to get it. What What's the story with that one? You would X-ray it and do some kind of a a steel test to make sure it's not made out of a, a crappy alloy or yeah we can we can determine what um material it's made of without destroying it so you can do spark tests and and um microscopic tests to work out um a good metallurgist will be able to tell us within a very close approximation what he thinks that material is we need to do a crack test to make sure there's no uh, features there that might uh, fail, cause failure under fatigue. And then we might do some quick calculations as well and make sure that the size of everything is suitable to that particular vehicle as well. So it's pretty rigorous, but it's all about protecting the owner of that car at the end of it, that he's not going to get killed or kill somebody else uh, with a poor quality product. It's very unfortunate with this US stuff that it doesn't come engineered with a full you know, report and You've mentioned Australian products, and we all know what they are out there that come absolutely fully engineered, tested, and approved. In fact, some of those companies have had them approved nationally by the various departments of transport around the states. And I know there's products here in Queensland approved in that way. Unfortunately, they don't suit your Chevy truck, do they? No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, it's well, and then, and then I. You know, in that situation, you you go down the next the next step of that is to contact those companies and say, can you build one that fits these chassis rails and does this and that, and and they can customize and they can build them all. It's just an expensive exercise. That's that's the only difference. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. So so would you regularly steer someone a little bit in the direction of buying one of these, maybe more of an Australian made? front end even if it's a ht or something like that that might fit your chassis um to be honest michael the most popular thing in queensland at the moment with pickups is rebodying them i'll i'll be doing one of those every month and it's amazing what chassis people come up with uh to stick a 48 chev truck body or a bedford truck body um on if you go to Oh, I better not mention, I've got a Facebook page where I engineer products and show them there, but I'm always putting up rebodied trucks. Trucks are very popular at the moment because all of the sedans and coupes and all that out on the farms are gone. Trucks are still out there though, aren't they? And so rebodied trucks are massive at the moment. Um, so that's a big part of what I do. Am I answering your question <laughs> or have I got off the track? Uh, no, I think, I think we're doing both, but that's all right. Yeah. So, so as an example, I did see on, on your Facebook page, you had a, a 1947 KB5, which is a really nice looking truck in my opinion. Yes. And it's been, it's been rebodied onto a 97 um, Nissan Patrol four-wheel drive chassis. So, you know, I, I look at that one and, to me, and, and I'm still learning, so I'm no expert, and I, I state that quite often, but to me, there's a lot of stuff in my, in my knowledge that has to be done to, to match that body to the chassis. You know, does it, what, what is involved in something like that? Is there side intrusion bars? Is there padded dashboards? Is there collapsible steering columns? Like what, what has to happen for that vehicle? Um, to match the 97 chassis? Does, does it have to meet those regulations? Yeah, so you've got to match the year of the chassis that you've chosen to use. So in that case, 97, we get the ADRs out and we look at all relevant ADRs that were applicable up to and including 97. And we say, that's what you've got to put in that truck. So in the case of that vehicle, he had to have side intrusion bars, he had to have 
heated to mist them, believe it or not, because you've got to be able to demist the windscreen or aircon, either one. Uh, heated to mist her, two speed wipers, washers, windscreen washers, a collapsible steering column, inertia reel lap sash seat belts, correctly mounted ADR seats. Uh, and here's one for you, Michael a padded dash on the left hand side. <laughs> because, oh, right. because those old trucks are metal dashes. They often have a solid knob sticking out of the glove box lid. They're all things that really hurt people in the event, you know, metal toggle switches, all that sort of stuff. That's all got to be removed and a, and a pad put on that left-hand side. The reason I say left-hand side is because the driver has the steering wheel. He doesn't need a pad. He's got his collapsible column to protect him. But on the other side, it's got to be padded. Like a modern car, you get in any modern car today, there's no metal, it's all padding, it's all soft and round to protect you in the accident. So, yeah. so here he's had to, and that's no big, the guy had no trouble bringing that cab up to all those specs. Um, we even check double latching of the latches, door latches, strength of the door hinges, all that stuff as well. All new glass throughout that complies with the ADR. And you wouldn't leave original 48 kind of glass in there anyway, would you? And then the correct mounting of the cabin onto that chassis is by far the most important thing. Getting that right, insulated with the right number of uh, bolts through there and the right style of mounts. And so he ended up with the first um, pickup that I've ever done that's four-wheel drive. And he takes the bloody thing over to Stradbroke and goes through the sand dunes in it. Like, how good is this? <laughs> Ima like, imagine what the ferry guy is thinking when he, when he drives on on the mainland. You can't take that over there. It's four-wheel drive only. Yeah, but it is. <laughs> And and the advantage there is that you know he can just rock down to his mechanic or his Nissan dealership and and they can service it and they've got all the parts and they know what it is. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, for instance, if if he'd used a two thousand and something patrol that's fitted with airbags and sensors and all those sort of things, then he would somehow have to incorporate that into his build, wouldn't he? Yes, and so. We, when people come to us with that concept, we tell them to slow down because um, it's going to be very difficult to do. And so, in fact, we advise people to buy the oldest model of whatever they're thinking of that they can get their hands on. Even in Holden One Tunners, it's important to buy one before 1986 because that was when a whole lot more ADRs came applicable. So if you can get your hands on a 72, to 85, you're doing much better than if you get that last one, you know, the WB series where um, emissions were much higher, unleaded fuel had come in. It was a different ball game by then. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a lot to think about here. And certainly uh, at the moment, unless you're very technically competent, you want to keep away from a very late model vehicle because you've got to maintain the ADRs. Yes. And, and something for the guys listening, if, if they're not already doing it, if, if you're trying to find a chassis to use for your pickup body, I, I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is, is the width of the original chassis for that vehicle. Look for something that's similar because, you know, as you said, Tim, like, the, you know, the HQ kind of era of uh, one-tonner um, chassis are very popular to use but they have a very wide chassis especially where the cab sits and then and then they come in really they actually come in real leg bone and and then you have your front suspension but so yeah i, I know you know a lot of guys using like the 47 through 53 sort of chev bodies you run into issues with your, your running boards sometimes you have to you know change the bottom of the inside of your door to fit so that's an important one to Keep in mind when you're thinking about not just the vehicle for its engine and for its suspension, but also the chassis width is pretty important as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think there's probably three 
main elements, um, the width, as you talked about, although if, for example, it's too narrow, you can always build outrigger mounts and bring those out to suit the original cab mounts that belong to the cab you've chosen. The second thing is um, the shape of the chassis. You know, you don't want a funny little kick up right where you want to put the cab, for example. You want a nice flat area at the front. And for example, that um, patrol chassis, that was flat all the way to the back with a little kick up over the diff to give it some wheel travel and then flat again to the back. So it's important to know what kind of body and tray you want to put on and find a chassis that suits that without having to build ridiculous pedestals and things that really make the thing look ugly to try and get your tray at the right height and so on. So I think, you know, they're the, they're the sort of elements you need to think about. Yeah. And, and something you mentioned earlier before we started recording, we were having a chat, but one of the big differences that you guys face in Queensland that we don't necessarily face, I don't think, down here in Victoria anyway, is you were talking about the load ratings of a pickup. Do you want to just talk about that again? Yeah, we used to be able to build uh, what we call recreational pickups in Queensland, and that was typical of uh, things like Ford F100s and so on. Everyone loves a 56 F100. And they were built by in hundreds and maybe thousands during the 70s, 80s and so on uh, as recreational pickups. They had polished wood decks in them or stainless steel or no one ever intended to put any load in them. But there came a point in the 80s, probably around that 86 point where there was changes in all the ADRs, that Queensland Trample said, look, we're not going to allow that any longer. If you build a pickup, you need to maintain the load rating. And, and one of the biggest reasons, there must have been some accidents, I'm not aware of them, Michael, but where people put, where a recreational pickup was built with quite soft, malleable suspension, um, and someone then bought that and put a load in it and maybe had an accident. I'm not sure about what the reasoning was, but for whatever reason, they said, look, it's a dangerous scenario we're putting recreational vehicles on the road that could later be mistaken for a load-carrying vehicle. So we need you to, to maintain the load rating. And it's not that difficult to do um, and still have a very nice-looking pickup. And so we do some specific things like using large diameter coils on the rear. You can still have your four-link, but we just put a, a large diameter load-rated spring in the rear rather than a a more lightweight, um, a lightweight uh, coilover. We make sure the front end is load rated, either the original front end or something like L300, Jaguar, etc. I guess in summary, it can, you can. It's not that hard to maintain your load rating uh, and still have a very good looking vehicle as long as you use components that are load rated. You still get a great ride. For example, Michael, we use Holden Ute independent rear coils on F100s uh, and because they're in an independent scenario they have a ratio of two to one when they're operating on a suspension arm in a Holden but when you put them on top of a, a diff they become one to one so they become twice as strong um, and so they are very suitable for load rating of a big truck of that kind. So we got very simple engineering uh, procedures for how we can keep people happy and maintain a load-rated vehicle. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, it's just something to be aware of and, and to to factor around when you're building, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't have any trouble with the guys uh, who want to build that way. They've got no problem with it at all. And quite frankly, people don't understand that coilovers are a high-frequency, what I call a high-frequency spring, compared to a large diameter coil, which is low frequency. So the difference is when you drive over an undulated road, a big diameter spring will set up a pattern over that and smooth it out. But a coil over, you'll feel every bump. You'll feel all the valleys and all the ridges because that's the nature of that kind of spring. So, yeah, for example, I tell people, <laughs> I don't know whether I should mention this, I tell people that when I'm driving to Summonats in my ute 
on the back roads at 140k. It sets up a beautiful pattern in my ute uh, that you can never get with a coilover. It's a, just a different thing. And guys who've driven like that will know what I'm talking about. Mm. Not, but I mean, that's a 140k zone, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to have some fun. We do, don't we? Okay, yes. Yeah. yeah. So so talk, talking springs, um, the, the next question I wanted to sort of have a chat to you about was, was air springs or, as everyone calls them, airbags. You know, what... What have you dealt much with those? And and it'd be interesting to have a bit of a chat about the rules and regulations regarding ride height and, and how far you can lower your car. And because I know that, you know, especially a lot of the guys that I talk to, that's that's kind of what a lot of people want. They want that, you know, half ton looking American style pickup and they wanna they want it to, to drive on the road at, you know, your legal 100 mil, but then they want to get to the show and they just want to sit it in the weeds and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so so where do we stand with that? What can we and can't we do? This is one area, Michael, that we engineers are very, are definitely unpopular because we can only interpret the rules the way they're written and they're not written in favour of people who want to run airbags. So, yeah. Because airbag guys want to be able to drop the car on the ground at, when they stop or at a show. They want to be able to make it go up and down while they're driving. They used to want to be able to make it go up on one side more than the other or at the front more than the back and so on, any combination you can think of. All of those are excluded in the Queensland regulations. You can't make the car go up and down by a manual controller joystick you've got within reach of the driving position so most guys settle for and they're readily available they settle for a three position controller that goes no lower than 100 mil so press button one 100 mil for driving on the freeway press button two a slightly higher position for driving in normal road conditions and press button three an even higher one for going over speed bumps and any obstacles, your driveway, for example, even getting over the curb. All positions have to be over equal to or greater than 100 mil. So when we do them, we normally have them at 110 just for safety. So uh, you, you can't let the air out in a public place and sit the car on the ground because you'll be defected. And that's happened a lot in Queensland. And the argument is there, and it's not a popular one, by any stretch. But nevertheless, the argument is that in that position, you've taken your ball joints and steering knuckles to a position that they were never intended to go to. You may have stressed them, you, which may cause a failure later on. So that's, that's the Queensland transport argument. And it's a fair one in a lot of cases. Nobody gets underneath and has a look at what's happening to, they, to those knuckles and joints unless you really plan it well ahead. So so a lot of guys go away and never come back once I've told them those rules. But I've also done dozens of vehicles, pickups and others that do fit them correctly like that and just love the way that all that works. It's not a popular area because everyone wants to be able to manually make it go up and down and sit it on the ground at the end of the day. And those two things aren't available other than with the presets. Mm. Okay. So that's that's probably a Queensland-specific thing, I would think, then. Yep, and it's clearly in a, a guideline specific to Queensland that's available, mm. again, to the public. Cool. All right. Well, um... Did that deflate you, Michael? <laughs> well, it did deflate me because I don't live in Queensland. But, uh... <laughs> okay. All right. See, I... My my understanding, I think down here is that you, if you want to sit it down low like that, you certainly can't do it while you're driving, and you have to have something in place in the vehicle, whether it be um, attached to your handbrake or you know maybe you've got an automatic when you're in yeah. the park. So when the vehicle's stopped, and you know the handbrake's on, then you can lower it down and there's got to be some restriction to the point where you can't drive away with it being down like that. Yeah. But I, I think there's still, 
I think the you know what we call um, slamming it, you know, so the chassis on the ground and you know all that sort of stuff. I don't, I don't know that that's actually legal anywhere in Australia because the problem there is if you're on the highway, the one in a quadrillion billion chance that all four airbags yeah. give out at the same time is that all of a sudden your vehicle's immobile and you can't push it off the road. Yes. And, you know, like the the sensible side of me says that totally makes sense. You have to be able to do that. And then also if you're driving along with it down low and then you get a flat tire and you're running a low-profile rim, th- there's all sorts of issues with it. Um, there is. But the at the end of the day, it, it does look really cool when they sit down. So, um, yeah, it's just working out what you can and can't do. Yeah, and I agree. I'm a car guy. I like the look as well, but I keep away from that problem when I'm certifying them. Um, because um, There's guys who have gone down to events like Winter Sun on our Gold Coast here in Queensland and been de- defected three years in a row, and they end up on the Hoon list and with threats of, uh, of the vehicle being crushed. So... The police here are definitely onto it. Mm. Yeah. So another question for you is about um, wheel size. So, you know, I know we were talking earlier about uh, Land Cruisers. I've got an 80 series Land Cruiser. And so I know that, you know, I can legally run a 33-inch tyre, but I can't run a 35-inch tyre because it's more than 50 mil larger than what the factory wheel for that vehicle was. So. How does that go with, let's talk about that, you know, 47 KB5 that you talked about earlier. I mean, that thing would have probably come from the factory with 20-inch rims and massive tyres because it was a truck. And if if he uses, if he were to use the original chassis, which he didn't in that situation, he could run quite a large profile wheel. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, in Australia, it's a pretty national rule that light motor vehicles are only allowed one inch over iron diameter. Four-wheel drives are allowed two inches over, and that may apply to trucks as well. I'm not sure. I mostly operate in the light vehicle area. And when you build a car that's highly modified, it becomes a new vehicle. So, And that's not the case, unfortunately, with that, that rebody that you've mentioned with the Nissan Patrol. He still had to stick to within 50 mil of the diameter of the Nissan Patrol wheel, and he was quite happy with that. But if you built a highly modified um, pickup truck, it's a new vehicle, and you can put whatever diameter and width wheels you want on there. Um, the only restriction you might have is meeting track, that the wheel offset has to make sense to whatever suspension that you're using on that vehicle. But it's a new vehicle. It can have any wheel diameter at once, uh, provided you can measure speed correctly uh, based on that wheel diameter. Yeah. And and do the front and back wheels have to be the same size? No, they don't. And that make a lot of pickup guys happy in Queensland. Um, and I would have thought it was a general rule throughout Australia that you don't need to meet uh same diameter front and rear either i think we're getting pretty close to the questions that come to my mind tim you know is there any general advice that that you think you could share with with guys who are you know planning a build or or maybe especially the guys that are currently you know mid build that probably haven't spoken to an engineer yet you know do you want to give them some (laughs) advice (laughs) well i think we've covered it i think the first thing is you've got a responsibility to inform yourself. So you need to be proactive and you need to be aware of what the rules do say yourself. They're there in the public forum through the internet. So download and have a look. The second is get good advice. It doesn't have to always be an engineer. Join a join a pickup uh, truck uh, club and, and there'll be dozens of guys there from all the various trades. There'll be sparkies, there'll be mechanics, there'll be all those guys. Talk to them. Go and have a look at other vehicles that are on the road and be or being built, either within the club. Go to shows and look at what's being built out there. 
inform yourself, um, get good advice. And then finally, yeah, talk to certifiers, find the one that you'd probably like to use all the way through, particularly at the end to get the end result you'd like. You can do that process by the way I do it with other trades is I interview people. It could be a plumbing job, but I'll get three quotes and I'll talk to the plumbers and I'll form an opinion about, you know, which plumber I think is the most confident. There's nothing different about that compared to finding the right engineer or certifier for your car. Talk to a few, you'll start to see there's a common trend amongst the good ones and there might be some trends that you don't like the sound of. Then settle on the guy and work together right from the beginning wherever possible or as soon as you can. I think that's pretty much it. Um, and I suppose finally don't do things that are outside your own competence. Get people in to do those things. In other words, if you're not a welder, don't do absolute critical welds like body mounts or the mounts for the steering. Have somebody, you might tack it together and get your mate who's a qualified boilermaker to finish it off for you. But don't do things that are not in your competency range. And that's about it, Michael, I think. No, that's really good advice. And and what about, you know, we talked earlier about sort of stages of a build, but what, what would you think are the ideal stages to probably have eyes on a build? Yeah, um, I think there's a first stage where if you've got the vehicle in its raw state or if it's a rebuddy, you've got two vehicles. You've got the one that's going to be the chassis and you've got their traditional looking body, that's a good stage to meet with your certifier and say, these are the two things I want to bring together. Or if it's an original vehicle, this is what I'm going to do with it. You know, what should I do to that original chassis to make it good enough for the future? Um, second stage is, is chassis, running gear mounted and body on the chassis. That's a good stage to look at, okay, well, what's the engine mounts? What's the suspension mounts? How's that body mounted? What's the interferences between the two or three elements of all of that? And almost once you've got that bit right, it's through to finish at the end. I, typically a three-stage inspection is, is usually pretty good. So that final stage is, is everything there in the right place? Um, oh, I, should, I should say there's a point just before upholstery or trim if it's going to be, and that's where things get hidden, like seatbelt mounts and so on. You can see them before they get covered. And then final stage, like we just talked about, ready for the road, do a brake test, check the sound level, do all that stuff that's work all the lights, wipers, washers, etc. try everything out and um, then certify it and off they go to Rego. Mm, that's good. And, and how difficult is the situation and I guess people need to understand, I guess if you're listening to this, you probably do by now, but, you know, if if I live in Queensland and I just bought a vehicle off a guy in Victoria and it's engineered and registered in Victoria and I ship it up to Queensland, I have to get that recertified by a Queensland engineer. Is that right? Yeah, Michael, uh, we live in a great country where there's no reciprocal rights between the states. I mean, we've got the population of... Los Angeles spread around this whole country, and yet you can't transfer a car that's modified in New South Wales or Victoria to Queensland without it being done again. But naturally, as engineers or certifiers, we, and the reason I mentioned those two terms is because not all certifiers or engineers, they are limited to the number of codes that they can do because they're a mechanic or a diesel fitter and so on. Uh, but an engineer will always use whatever engineering comes with the car and just build on that. You don't need to do everything again. If it's soundly engineered and there's good backup data with it, we don't do it all again just just for the fun of it. We use all that and, and just inspect what we have to do to make up the gap. That's it. Mm. But, yes, yep, it does have to be reviewed and, research, and another mod plate put on. So... Next to the yellow one from New South Wales, we put another blue one. It's it's ridiculous, but we do. And, and as we said, you know, 
our engineers don't make the rules. You guys are just there to follow them and, and do the best you can. So I, I appreciate your time, Tim. Um, if people want to check you out, you have a Facebook page, Dr. Tim's Auto yeah. Engineering. Uh, is there a website? No, I I get enough work from that Facebook page, believe it or not. And I put a lot of elements in there. I I show faulty things that people can learn from. I do that for a reason so that people can see what's right and wrong. I put brilliant engineering in there too to show that. And I show the kind of work that I do so that they can look at that and think, okay, well, he can do that. He should be able to uh, engineer my car because it's very similar. And they can contact me through Facebook, through personal messages or as a comment on something that I'll put there anyway. Um, and we can start from there. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks again for your time. And, you know, to the guys that are listening, if you're in Queensland, um, I didn't pull Tim out of a hat. He came highly recommended to me from many, many guys who've uh, who've had vehicles engineered by him. So, um, you know, I, I think you're very well known, Tim, and I, I appreciate your time having a chat with us. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. See you for now. Great. Okay. That was really great to hear from Tim, and, and I sort of promised at the start of the episode that I'd have a little bit for uh, just for our Victorian listeners. Uh, we will get a Victorian engineer on soon, and and then we'll get some uh, information for down here. But I just wanted to, you know, at the end of that interview, I was like, oh my god, I can't. I'm building my truck because I want to sit it on the ground at a show, and I I just had this moment where I was like, maybe I can't do that. You know, I really have to check the rules. So I went back to where my engineer directed me, and and that's the Vic Roads website, and they have uh, vehicle standards information bulletins, and this one's um, VSI 8, so it's Guide to Modifications for Motor Vehicles. And there's a contents table there, and there's a whole heap of information um, regarding transmissions, brakes, body, chassis, all that sort of stuff. So you scroll down, and you get to 13.6, which is airbag suspension. So let me just scroll up here for a second and I'll read it out. So just bear with me. If this is boring, then you can just tune out and finish the podcast. But uh, if you're building an airbag truck, uh, this might be good information for you. So can't find it now. Okay, 13.6 airbag suspension. So it says here, the replacement of conventional coil and or leaf springs by airbags is acceptable provided that. And there's some dot points. So first one is a VAS approved certificate has been issued in respect of the modification. So that means you've gone and got a VAS approved certification from an engineer to do that. The next dot point, the ride height of an individual wheel or axle cannot be altered while the vehicle is in motion. Now, I read that to mean you can't adjust the front height or the back height or the side height while your vehicle's in motion. So it didn't. It doesn't say that all of your wheels can't be moved, but it just says you can't uh, adjust the ride height of an individual wheel. The next dot point says at least two thirds of the original suspension travel in either direction is retained at all selectable ride heights while the vehicle is in motion. So I've read through that a hundred times in my head. I don't one hundred percent understand that, but I guess what they're just saying is that you still have to have at least two thirds of your suspension travel so that when you're driving along. It can, you know, it can travel through its range of motion. That's how I read that. The next one is the original altitude of the vehicle is maintained at all selectable ride heights while the vehicle is in motion. That's a tricky one to really read properly. And, and the way I understand that, just me personally reading that, I think that what they're saying is if, if I've got a selection of a ride height, you know, maybe I can have it at 100 mil and then the next button is going to give me 120. I think what they're saying is while I'm in motion, I can't change that you have to probably stop before you can change it don't really know that's an interesting one and i probably have to talk to my engineer uh, the next dot point is the one that really interested me so it says a minimum running clearance of 100 millimeters is maintained at all selectable ride heights while the vehicle is in motion now i'm sure we all know and i remember this as a p-plater you know i pulled up by the cops in my um i had a v8 ford bear lane and they rolled the, you know, like the little Coke can thing on a stick underneath and it, it hit one of my brackets and I had to go and get, I got a canary and I had to go get the car redone. So 
you have to have 100 mil clearance under any vehicle on the road in Australia. You know, I don't think that matters where you are. So what they're saying is that um, while the vehicle's in motion and you're driving on a road, it has to have 100 mil millimetres of clearance. Uh, it doesn't say that you can't stop the vehicle and lower it lower than 100 mil. So that's good news for me. A suitably sized receiver fitted with a non-return valve on the supply side is incorporated to ensure continued inflation of the airbags in the event of compressor failure. That makes sense to me. They obviously, the compressor fails. Um, you've got a tank that's got air in it and the you know one-way valve, so you can't lose your air out of your bags. And the last one is an audible indicator or a visual indicator visible to the driver in their normal seated position is fitted to alert the driver of any loss of pressure or of compressor failure. So that wouldn't be too hard to wire up, just a pressure valve, um, something there that's giving you a, a reading. So that's the dot points um, in that VicRoad's um, Guide to Modifications for Motor Vehicles. So have a read of that if that's something you're looking at. Um, it certainly doesn't say you can't do things. It's just, you know, as everything, we've got to fit in those standards. So that was good for me to read because, uh, you know, I'd like to set my vehicle at three heights. One of them would be zero sitting on the ground. The next one is going to be 100 mil because that's what I'm going to drive it at and then probably be able to raise it up to maybe 150 to go over a speed hump or up a driveway or up a dirt road. So that's my plan for my truck and, and I'm hoping that that'll all be okay, but I don't know yet. So we'll wait and see. Anyway, that's enough babbling. Um, thanks for listening to the episode. As I said, we'll try and get a Victorian engineer on soon. And I'll try and find an engineer that has, has dealt with airbag suspension before. Uh, I know personally my engineer hasn't done a whole lot of it, so he may not be the best guy to talk to as far as a lot of the questions I think we want to get answers to. So that's for a future episode. Thanks for listening, guys, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All information shared in our episodes is general, and you should contact your engineer for advice on your build. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with friends and fellow enthusiasts on Facebook, iTunes, or the good old word of mouth. I appreciate hearing feedback, good and bad, so please feel free to shoot me an email, classicpickuppodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in advertising on the podcast and have a relevant business, please get in touch. And finally, if you have a project you're building, it can be hard to find the time to work on it. Just spend 15 minutes a day even if you only unbolt one panel or mount one bracket, you'll be amazed at how quickly it all adds up. The music you hear in the background of this podcast is called Hammer On Down by Uncle Bonehead. Until next week, enjoy the ride.